We're continuing tonight our walk through the book of Daniel. So I'll invite you to turn there with me again in tonight to chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia. 
The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the, later, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, and I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Father, um, I pray... um, that tonight there would be one to explain this vision to us, that uh, as we read in John 16, that you would send your Holy Spirit to teach us. God, use my lips and my preparation, but let it be your Holy Spirit guiding our time tonight so that we get this right and we understand and we apply what is on the page before us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have another dream, and more beasts, and more kings, and kingdoms, and horns, and another opportunity in them all to put on our thinking caps tonight again, and to try and figure out, with the Holy Spirit's help, not only what it all means, but also to discern how that meaning applies to us in our own day. And I do want you to keep that in mind this evening. This is not simply an exercise in prophetic and historical research so that we can figure out all the details and be satisfied. God showed Daniel these visions and he had them recorded for us so that we would better know and love and trust our God. So we'll have to work through the horns and the ram and the goat and the 2,300 days and the kings and all of those things, but we'll try to do it tonight with an eye to how these things carry us forward to the great king who rules over them all and who is coming someday to make all things new. So with all that in mind, let's make an attempt just to walk through this passage and to consider the symbols that are here and to decipher their meaning as best we can, and then we'll circle back and try to make some applications before we finish. So first of all, Daniel's dream and its meaning. First of all, under that category, let's notice the timing of the dream. That, that will be important, the timing of the dream in verse 1. Daniel saw all these things in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, who, as you may remember, was king of Babylon. So this dream was given to Daniel while the king of Babylon and while the kingdom of Babylon was still standing. And that's important because while in chapter 6 we read about Daniel, or Babylon's fall 
and we read about the rise of the king of Media. In chapter 7 and 8 now, we've gone backward in time to a pair of visions which Daniel had prior to that event while the Babylonian Empire was still standing. And so when Gabriel tells Daniel in verse 20 about the coming kings of Media and Persia, he is prophesying something which from the standpoint of Daniel chapter 8 has not yet happened. We have seen the king uh, of Media arise already in chapter 6, but Daniel had this dream before that event happened, while that event was still yet future. Keep that in mind. In fact, everything Daniel saw in this dream was still yet future from his vantage point, though from our vantage point, most, if not all of it, is now past. So that's the first thing to notice, and it will be important, and we'll come back to it, the timing of Daniel's dream. He's seeing things that have not yet happened from where he sits in chapter 8. But then we should also notice briefly that this is Daniel's second dream. Subsequent, he says in verse 1, to the one which appeared to me previously. And of course we saw the first dream last week in chapter 7. And while there is some overlap between the two dreams in terms of what they foretell, they're not one and the same. We'll see that shortly. These two dreams have some overlap, but they don't finish in exactly the same place. So what of this second dream? What does Daniel see here, and what does it all mean? Well, the first thing he sees in verses 3 and 4 is a ram, a ram with two horns, one horn larger than the other horn. And this ram is butting its head to the north and the south and the west and trampling other beasts in its path. And in verse 20, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that this two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the fact that the latter horn was longer than the former signifies that Persia eventually overshadowed her sister kingdom of Media. It's the same reason why the bear in chapter 7 was raised up on one side. After the Babylonians, in whose rule or under whose rule Daniel was now living, another kingdom would arise like a hungry bear or a conquering ram, and it would vanquish many foes and reign over them. Medo-Persia. But then, great as that two-horned ram was, Daniel saw another beast, beginning in verse 5, coming from the west and moving swiftly, so swiftly that it seemed its feet did not touch the ground, and devastating the original beast that Daniel saw, the ram, and trampling it down. And this, says Gabriel in verse 21, is the kingdom of Greece, which would come and which did come to reign in place of Medo-Persia. And this Grecian goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, we're told in verse 5, which represented the first king, verse 21. And most commentators are agreed that this is a picture of Alexander the Great, that famous Grecian king of the 300s B.C. Some of you have probably heard of him. I think there may have even been a movie about him not long ago. Well, this is who is being referred to by this horn in the goat's head. And like the swiftness of a leopard in chapter 7, some of the scholars point out the swiftness of this goat racing across the earth without touching the ground probably represents the rapidity with which Alexander conquered his foes. But Alexander died 
and his kingdom splintered into four parts under four separate rulers, as is pictured by the four horns in verse 8, and which is explained in verse 22. So this second beast is Greece, led initially by Alexander the Great, who conquered Medo-Persia, but whose kingdom splintered into quarters. And then Daniel saw that out of one of those quarters, another king arose in verses 9 through 11. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Or as this same person is described, beginning in verse 23b, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Now think this out with me. Here's a great and cruel king represented by a small horn in verse 9, persecuting God's people who are symbolized by the stars in verse 10. He swipes them down from the sky, cutting off temple sacrifices and defiling the sanctuary in verse 11, and even making himself out to be equal with God, equal with the commander of the host, verse 11, opposing the prince of princes, verse 25, whom several of the scholars I read believe is God himself. And I think that's right. He opposes God. He makes himself out to be equal with God. Who is this? Well, we might read all of this and think immediately about the little horn whom we read about last week in Daniel chapter 7, and whom we said then probably symbolizes the Antichrist with a capital A that the New Testament speaks about as well, this great ruler of the end times. But that's not generally how the small horn of Daniel chapter 8 is interpreted. It is usually interpreted that this small horn is not the same one as the one we read about in chapter 7. Because, first of all, the little horn of Daniel 7 comes out of the fourth kingdom. Daniel's vision, remember, there were four kingdoms in his vision, and the little horn rose out of the fourth one, which I told you is probably the Roman Empire. But this little horn arises out of the kingdom of Greece. That's whom the goat represents, Gabriel says in verse 21, Greece. And Bible students are largely agreed that the small horn here then represents a king of Grecian descent. And they're agreed primarily that he represents that great Grecian king, whom I mentioned only briefly last week, a wicked man called Antiochus IV, Epiphanes who reigned in the 2nd century B.C. in the time between the Testaments. History tells us that Antiochus IV did indeed do the very sorts of things that are described in this chapter and for the very length of time that is given in verse 14. The Jewish book of 1 Maccabees 
records how Antiochus did persecute God's people, the Jews, living between the time of the Testaments, and how he did forbid sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem, and how he did force the people to offer pagan sacrifices instead on pain of death for anyone who disobeyed. And he did, 1 Maccabees tells us, desecrate the temple by setting up a pagan altar on the very altar of God. In fact, let me just read you a passage concerning these events from that book of 1 Maccabees uh, and from its first chapter, verses 41 through 64. I'm reading it in the Revised Standard Version. This is what 1 Maccabees says about the time period of Antiochus IV. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that each should give up his customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, and uh, to profane Sabbaths and feasts, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they should forget the law and change all the ordinances. And whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. In such words he wrote to his whole kingdom, and he appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the cities of Judah to offer sacrifice city by city. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them, and they did evil. In the land they drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 100th, and 45th year they erected a desolating sacrilege upon the altar of burnt offering they also built altars in the surrounding cities of Judah and burned incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets the books of the law which they found they tore to pieces and burned with fire where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone or if anyone adhered to the law the decree of the king condemned him to death they kept using violence against Israel against those found month after month in the cities, and on the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar, which was upon the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised, and their families, and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mothers' necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die, and very great wrath came upon Israel. End of quote. Now, did you hear it? The destruction of God's people, as in verses 10 and 24, the removal of the temple sacrifices and the desecration of the temple, in verse 11, in this reign of terror, a few of the scholars point out, lasted about six and one-third years, or approximately 2,300 days, just as Daniel was told in verse 14. From the time of the murder of the Jewish high priest Onias, Stephen Miller points out, until the Jewish victory over Antiochus, led by a man called Judas Maccabeus, 
and the cleansing and the rededication of the temple, which are still celebrated today in the Feast of Hanukkah. From the time of the murder of this priest until the cleansing and rededication of the temple, there passed, Miller says, a period of a little over six years, the 2300 days of Daniel 8, 14. And what of this small horn being broken, verse 25, without human agency? Well, there are varying reports as to how Antiochus IV met his end. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, quoting a source called Usher's Annals, says that Antiochus died of a plague of worms in his bowels, which he eventually came to see as judgment for his treatment of the Jews and of the temple. And, says Henry, he died miserably in a strange land. John MacArthur also mentions the trouble with Antiochus's bowels, but says that he died of this affliction coupled with insanity. And Stephen Miller, citing the book of First Maccabee, says that Antiochus died in grief, or died of grief and remorse after hearing of the Jewish victory over his forces in Jerusalem. Maybe it was a combination of all three. The rotting away of his bowels, producing both remorse for what he had done and eventually insanity, so that all three things perhaps conspired to kill him. But whichever the three it was, or if it was a combination of them, Antiochus, just as verse 25 says, was broken without human agency. He was not assassinated. He did not die in battle. He died without human intervention at all. He died, I think it's fair to say, by the hand of God. And all of this is why it is generally believed that the small horn in Daniel 8 was indeed the second century B.C. persecutor of the Jews, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. But then you might ask, well, if this is all fulfilled in in Antiochus in the second century B.C., what about Gabriel's statement in verse 17 that the vision pertains to the time of the end? How can that be if the small horn has already risen and has already persecuted God's people and has already desecrated the temple and has already fallen by the hand of God? How can Antiochus be the bad guy in Daniel 8 if the vision pertains to the time of the end? Well, it's possible, as several commentators point out, it's possible that the time of the end doesn't refer to the end with a capital E, but that the time of the end here means not the end of the world, but simply the end of this particular period of history, this period of persecution. Daniel is being told about the end of that. And so if Antiochus is indeed the small horn of Daniel 8, then there's a sense in which that must be true. This particular season of persecution would come to an end eventually, and Daniel is being told about it. And as we've seen, it surely did come to an end. But then there may be something else to this phrase, the vision pertains to the time of the end, because while it does seem clear to me and to many that the prophecies in Daniel 8 were indeed fulfilled in the 2nd century B.C. in the person of Antiochus IV, it's also been suggested by some commentators that Antiochus IV may have been a kind of foreshadowing of the Antichrist who is to come. Namely, that his overrunning of the house of God, his persecution of the people of God, his making himself out to be equal with God, may have been just a little foretaste of that little horn who will appear in the time of the end of the world. 
And so the small horn in chapter 8 is perhaps a figuring of the little horn who is spoken of in chapter 7. They're not the same, but one perhaps foreshadows the other. And so MacArthur points out that this also may be a sort of second meaning to this phrase, the vision pertains to the time of the end. The vision may well pertain to the time of the end in that Antiochus, who came in the second century BC, prefigures the Antichrist who will come at the very end of the world. So what have we here in Daniel chapter 8? We have a prophecy given some time in advance of the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we have the announcement that that empire will be overrun by the Greeks under their great leader, Alexander the Great. And then we have the division of Greece into four kingdoms, one of which would give rise to a great persecutor of the people of God, whom history has demonstrated to be Antiochus IV, who ended the sacrifices and desecrated the temple and was eventually broken without human agency. And then this Antiochus may well be a foreshadowing of an even more wicked king to come in the end times, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, the little horn of Daniel 7. That is Daniel's dream here in chapter 8. And it made Daniel exhausted and sick for days, we're told in verse 27. But what effect should it have on us? How should we apply what Daniel saw? Let me make three applications from this passage tonight. The first is simply this. Evil is real. This passage reminds us that evil is real. Evil is in the world. We may sometimes sort of live in our own little worlds, fairly insulated from the sufferings and persecutions of God's people out there. But Daniel 8 brings us back to reality, I hope. Yes, this chapter speaks of a particular period of suffering that is long since past, but it reminds us, I hope, that Antiochus was not the last beast to persecute God's flock. That's what I pointed out to you towards the end of last Wednesday's message from the commentator Ian Duguid on Daniel chapter 7. He writes as follows, The beasts of the present world order may change their shape as the centuries passed, centuries past, but their violence and lust for power continues. Nebuchadnezzar turns into a Darius who becomes an Alexander the Great and then an Antiochus. These fierce rulers are in turn followed by Nero and a Domitian. Their fires continue to be stoked centuries later by the Inquisition. In the last century, we have seen further manifestations of the beast in the persons of Hitler, Stalin, and Kim Il-jung. Frightening beasts of this age were present at the gas chambers of Belsen and on the killing fields of Cambodia and Rwanda, and they are still tormenting the saints in Sudan and China and in other parts of our modern world. Now, Duguid wouldn't necessarily agree with me in my identification of the beast last week in Daniel chapter 7, but he is on to something important here when he reminds us that there will always be wicked men persecuting God's church. We're seeing that even in recent months with ISIS in the Middle East, aren't we? After all, what prevents there being any more Antiochus, any more Antichrist with a lowercase a? There's nothing that prevents that except if God should sovereignly 
overrule it. And he doesn't always do that. And all of these antichrists with a lower K should foreshadow for us, should warn of us of the last and great one with a capital A. Evil is real. That's what I want you to take from Daniel chapter 8. And I hope as you ponder Daniel's vision here, and as you watch the modern news reports that seem to repeat the same sorts of stories, I hope that you too will be distressed by what you see like Daniel was in verse 27. And I hope that the sickness that you feel in the pit of your gut when you see these things about the evil in this world and particularly about the horrors that are committed against God's saints, I hope that will move you when you see it to prayer. And I hope it will move you to action on their behalf where that is possible. And I hope it will move you to the kind of courage that will stand with your brothers and sisters and that will stand for God when the days of trial come upon our own land. And if I just read the signs of the times correctly, they will come upon our own land, perhaps sooner than we think. Evil is real, and God's people will suffer in this world. That's one thing. But then, beside that, we need also to say that God is sovereign. Evil is real, but God is sovereign. Do not let it escape your notice that Daniel chapter 8 was not written after the fact. That's why the timing of Daniel's dream is so important in verse 1. He had this dream in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Babylon, which existed before the ram of Medo-Persia, ever came on the scene. And before Alexander the Great. And long before Antiochus. That's when Daniel had this dream, before any of these things ever happened. And I point that out simply to say that the events that happened in Daniel chapter 8 or that are, are, are prophesied in Daniel chapter 8 didn't just happen. They were foretold well in advance by a God who knows the future. And I think you'll agree with me from the rest of the Bible and even from the rest of this book of Daniel that God not only knows the future, God owns the future, and God controls the future, and he controls all the little kings who fancy themselves as making history. That's the point of what was said in verse 24 about Antiochus. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Not by his own power. Well, if it's not by his own power, whose power is it by? It's the power of the one who, in the words of Nebuchadnezzar, does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand. The Medes and Persians and Alexander and Antiochus all came to power because God is sovereign over history. Because, as Daniel put it in chapter 5, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he sets over it whomever he wishes. He sets over whomever he wishes. And this chapter is the fruit of that. How did Daniel's dream turn out so accurately? How did Gabriel know exactly what it all meant and how it would all play out? How did he know the names of these kingdoms that were to come? How did he know how long these things would last? And how did the Holy One in verse 14 give these exact dates? 2,300 days. Because God is sovereign. God declares the end from the beginning. It is he, Daniel said in chapter 2, who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings 
and establishes kings. And I say to you that this chapter bears that out. God is sovereign. And he wasn't just sovereign over Bible history, but he's sovereign today and has his reasons for allowing wicked men to run their course, reasons for allowing sin to persist in so many places, reasons for permitting his people to suffer. I don't pretend to know what they are, but Daniel 8, with all of its exactly fulfilled prophecies, reminds me that history is not random. God has already planned what will be. He has already destined what the course of history or how the course of history will run. And like Daniel chapter 8, everything is unfolding and everything will continue to unfold exactly according to his sovereign will. And though we don't fully understand that, I hope we can rest in it. Evil is real, but God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, that means finally that there will be an end. There will be an end to all the evil and the madness of mankind, including your own sin and your own madness and mine as well. Exactly as it was written, Antiochus met his demise broken without human agency. And his vice grip on Jerusalem was broken with human agency under the emancipation brought about by Judas Maccabeus. And so it will be with every human terror and every modern incarnation of Antiochus. God will not suffer evil men to reign terror on the innocent forever. Hitler was broken. Al-Qaeda will be broken. ISIS will be broken. And so will every lesser-known chief and every lesser-known magistrate this entire world over who dares to run roughshod over the people of God. God loves righteousness, and God loves his church, and he will not leave these things to be trampled forever. We don't always know how long it will be, Antiochus reigned terror for 2,300 days, which must have seemed like an eternity to God's shattered flock in Jerusalem. Other wicked men have had their leashes let out for much longer periods. But God is sovereign, and so there will be an end. And of course, the greatest proof of that comes to us in those events of which Antiochus's rise and fall were merely a shadow. Because how will the great and final beast meet his end? He will meet his end, won't he? How will it happen? What does the book of Revelation say? Christ will come. That's what it says. Christ will come and the beast will meet his end. Christ will come. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What a day that will be. Evil and sin will finally be overthrown once and for all. And it will be done, perhaps strikingly, perhaps surprisingly to some people, it will be done by the same agency, by the same coming king who did away with our sin by his death on the cross. Do you see? We must always look to Christ to make an end of sin. He it was who on the cross made an end to sin's penalty on behalf of every last one of his sheep. And he it was who made an end of sin's power in our lives too so that we don't have to keep doing it and so that as we behold his glory as in a mirror, we gradually become more and more like Jesus all the time. And it will be he who will eradicate sin's presence altogether as well when he returns, both by completing our sanctification and by wiping this earth clean of all who will not repent. The small and the great, the kings and the slaves. It is Christ who has dealt with the sin of his people, and it is Christ who will deal with the sins of all this world's Antiochuses as well. So yes, evil is real, but God is sovereign and he is sending his son into the world someday soon so that there will be an end to all the beasts and all the terrors and all the sins of mankind. And so we say with the Apostle John in the final chapter of the book of Revelation, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.